when you take a step, do you know whether you're stepping with your right foot or your left foot? When you take a sip of tea, do you know that right now your hand is moving towards your mouth? And do you know that you've decided to swallow once it's in your mouth? From the top. Yo, yo, this is too much. Slow down. Peace, God, peace. From Music City, Nashville to the world. This is not a podcast. This is not a conversation about art. This is an attempt to wake you up. And now that I've got your attention, don't listen to the words. Listen to the silence between the words. You are now entering the Museum Museum of of Presence. Welcome to the Museum of Presence, a space where we explore the interconnection between art and mindfulness. Today, we are honored to have with us Jennifer Wong, a practitioner of mindfulness and meditation for over 15 years. She is also a co-founder of the Nashville People of Color Sangha, a facilitator at One Dharma and Wild Heart Meditation Centers, and a board member of API Middle Tennessee, I don't know if I left anything out. I'm actually two. I'm on two new boards. Oh, what are the new boards? The Tennessee Environmental Council and Turnip Green Creative Reuse Center. Oh, shout out to Turnip Green. I live Turnip Green. As we sit down with Jennifer, we wonder how can the art in this exhibition invite us to deeper our mindfulness and tap into our inner wisdom? How can we use art as a means of cultivating empathy and understanding both for ourselves and for others? So without Further ado, let us embark on this journey with Jennifer, and then we'll delve into a meditation that responds to some of the work. But to start, Jennifer, my question is, how do you think art can invite us to cultivate mindfulness and empathy? Thank you, Shabazz, and thank you for having me here. This is a really beautiful topic because... I really do think of art as a practice for life, just as mindfulness and meditation are practices for life. I am not a visual artist myself, but I do consider a lot of what I do in this world to be art. And when you think about what is the definition of art, I think of creativity, I think of beauty, I think of space. And so could anything be art? Could washing the dishes be art? Could brushing your teeth be art? Without spoiling it too much, because I know you're going on retreat soon. When I went on retreat, it was a long retreat. It was a month-long silent retreat. And I remember my first week there, I was just noticing how hard I had been on myself my entire life. And so that first week, as my kind of dipping my toe into the practice, I committed to do everything with gentleness. And so I would reach for the door and I would open the door with as much gentleness as I could. I would turn on the faucet with as much gentleness as I could. I would brush my teeth with as much gentleness as I could. And thinking back on it, that felt like art, right? There was beauty in it and it was this gentleness towards myself and this gentleness not directed towards necessarily the sink or the doorknob, but just its gentleness that was my environment. And so I could be one with my environment with that gentleness. 
I tell you, I practiced meditation for many years before it clicked for me. It was washing the dishes. Ever since I was a child, I've hated washing the dishes. It was when I learned to love to wash the dishes. Mm. It's where I learned what mindfulness was all about. So it was at the sink, yeah. you know, and one, I learned that pro tip for anybody listening, if you're dad in the house, if you wash the dishes, nobody bothers you. That's <laughs> one thing to know. You're the boss of the house for at least an hour because you get to wash the dishes and nobody wants to wash the dishes. So that's the thing. The second thing is that it sort of just opened up for me. The ability to slow down and to yeah. do that was a blessing that I never knew that I needed. And so there's this poem, like I, I washed this teacup like it was the baby Buddha. Thich Nhat Hanh. If while washing dishes, we can only think of the teacup that awaits us, that's hurrying to get the dishes out of the way as if they were a nuisance, then we are not washing the dishes. What's more, we're not alive during the time we are washing the dishes. In fact, we are completely incapable of realizing the miracle of life while standing at the sink. If we can't wash the dishes, the chances are we won't be able to drink our tea either. While drinking the cup of tea, we will only be thinking of other things, barely aware of the cup in our hands. Thus, we are sucked away into the future, and we are incapable of actually living one moment of life. treat everything as precious as the most precious thing that you can imagine then you can begin to practice something and you're calling this art I like that yeah I like that and the thing about art as well as mindfulness practice is I think it really helps us to get out of our own way it's an embodiment practice so like with washing the dishes how does the water feel on your hands what's the temperature what's the heaviness How does the dish feel in the water? Is there a smell? How does the rest of my body feel when I'm washing the dishes? What's happening with my breath? So both art and washing the dishes and any form of art in life can be an invitation to practice. Again, this is this word practice of like, you don't have to get it perfect. You don't have to like achieve anything right now. Let's just practice being in our bodies. And I know that when I look at art, Like the first thing that I try to do is put a kind of a pause on my thoughts and try to understand what's what's happening here, what's the interpretation, what's my brainy interpretation. And I just try to breathe and be in my body and be like, what's the initial response? What is this initial bodily response? How can I be in my body with it? And then I'll go and I'll read and I'll understand the context. And then maybe that will then give me a little bit of a different understanding than what I had. But that then brings in like the mental cognitive function, which is great, which is fine. But I love it when the first thing is just what's the initial reaction without the storylines behind it. And that's mindfulness. I want to go back to something that you said about this practice 
when you said went on a silent retreat, right? A long retreat, a long retreat. And you realized that you had been how hard you had been on yourself your entire life. Right. Yeah. Get that right. Mm-hmm. It sort of speaks to some of the why. I think that some people who are listening to this conversation may have an invisible or a non-existing relationship with mindfulness and are probably might be asking, what is mindfulness? I think we speak about it a little bit, but why do I even need to practice? How could it actually, how could it actually benefit my life? Yeah. So there's a couple of different definitions of mindfulness. One that is used a lot is um, that it's present moment awareness with knowing and without judgment. So being aware of what's happening in the present, not just being aware, but with a sense of knowing and without judgment. And so sometimes I like to use the example of my dog. Okay, so my dog must be mindful all the time. True or not? So when I think about that, I think, okay, well, my mind, my dog is always in the present moment, but he's not thinking about the past or rehearsing something for the future. He's in the present. But the question is, when he's like sniffing around for a place to pee, does he know that's what he's doing? Does he know? And you could take that even down to the micro level of when you take a step, do you know whether you're stepping with your right foot or your left foot? When you take a sip of tea, do you know that right now your hand is moving towards your mouth? And do you know that you've decided to swallow once it's in your mouth? So that's the definition of mindfulness. How it can help. I mean, it's helped my life in so many ways. Yeah, but you have to help me understand why is it important for me to know if I'm using my right foot or if I'm swallowing. Well, let's just use the tea example, right? Like, (laughs) so that you know not to slurp. Never (laughs) was. Let's say that you were just drinking real fast and you were drinking this tea and you just weren't even thinking about it. You weren't knowing that your hand was moving towards your mouth. And then you're done with the tea and five minutes later, you're like, why is the top of the skin from the top of my mouth coming off? Oh, because you were just like swallowing it down and it was too hot. But you weren't with it and you weren't noticing it. Also, did you actually enjoy it? Like we're allowed to enjoy the moment. We're allowed to enjoy the tea. And can being more present give you that sense of joy just being in your body? And maybe the opposite too, like when you're not mindful, when you're not in the present moment, how do you feel? Some people say this is what leads to disease, dis-ease, mm-hmm. right? When your mind and your body are not aligned in the same time and place. And so this practice of mindfulness can really help us to wake up. And a lot of people think that meditation and mindfulness is about like going into slate, into a cave and like falling asleep. It's not about that. It's not about escaping. It's about being awake in our lives so that we can be more present, so that we can be more loving, empathetic, aware of what is happening now, and maybe therefore what needs to be done. So can I apply wisdom to what needs to be done? But in order to apply wisdom, I have to know what's actually the situation. practice stitches memories into muscles. A practice stitches energies into neurological networks. Practicing a posture of strength and poise invites strength and poise into posture. 
Practicing a breath that is slow and deep, invite slow and deep breaths into breathing. Practicing an open and beginner's mind invites perspectives only available to open and beginner's minds. Practicing compassionate listening invites secrets that only compassionate listeners provide. I mean, that poem is a practice in itself. Practice is the path as well as the fruition. The Buddha, when he taught, as it's been written down in the sutras or suttas, taught in this type of structure often where it was very repetitive and he seemed to be repeating himself but just inserting different words in. And to me that's super powerful because it creates this structure of simplicity where I can just let the brain relax a little bit because, okay, I don't have to like analyze all these things going on. I just have to know that it's slow and deep. It's open and beginner's mind and know that. And what comes out of this for me is the practice really helps us to embody what you might know in your brain. So switching from cognitive to really felt sense. And that's all of these say that. And this also speaks to me when I think about art, which is how much of art is in the brain and thinking and analyzing. And if you're an artist, planning it out and like going back and forth about trying to make yourself do it or whatever it is, to embodying it in your body, in your breath, in your muscles, so that when you practice and practice as both path and fruition, it becomes natural and automatic. The breathing becomes natural and automatic. The creativity becomes natural and automatic if you give yourself the space to practice. A lot of the foundation for the work that that I'm doing is about creating some kind of like visual cultural nomenclature, right? Like to create artifacts in the public space that retell stories in different ways. I went to college in Richmond, Virginia, and there was all of these monuments that were on what we call Monument Avenue. And that's where the Robert E. Lee sculpture with the Jefferson Davis, all of these sort of Confederate soldiers were just stood tall and broad in the middle of the most beautiful street in the city. And there was a practice there. Yeah. Every time that you went by there, there was this statement that was said that maybe you didn't even recognize you were inheriting, but there was this feeling that, hey, this place was built by these these soldiers that fought for the Confederacy. It's a really interesting practice that we're doing now of just tearing these sculptures down. And even that is an art in some ways. Hmm. My question to you is, how does this come to my everyday? How does the the practice of observing art and participating in art affect my life today? And how does it help me or hurt Mm. me? One thing that I like to think about with art is, I feel like a lot of art comes from suffering and reflects suffering. And we all know there's a lot of that going on right now. And a lot of what art does for me is transform that suffering into something else. And that's what Buddhism practice is all about. The Buddha basically said, I teach one thing, 
I teach suffering and freedom from suffering. And I really love that word freedom as well. And so if we can develop a practice of like on the most basic level, like a meditation practice, a mindfulness practice, there's this discipline of, I'm just gonna sit my butt down on the cushion and practice. Much like I imagine for artists, there's like a discipline of, I'm just gonna go into the studio and allot myself an hour to do art, whatever the time period might be. And so when you create that container, then you're like, okay, I know what I'm doing right now. Maybe I can bring some care to it and then just like let go and just have that space. I know that I'm giving myself that space. And so whatever's coming up, the suffering that's coming up, and suffering is just a part of life, so it's not like you're doing something wrong if there's suffering. The suffering that's coming up, if we can practice having a relationship with that rather than letting it consume us, this is like that mindfulness of knowing, okay, I am suffering right now, or more precisely, I am angry, I am irritated, I am joyful, whatever it might be, just knowing what's happening in the present moment, then we can say, okay, that's happening right now, let me be kind to myself about it, and let me see what I want to do about it. Could I turn this into something? Yeah, it's like I have an option here. It's not like there's a predestined picture of what I have to do when I'm angry about this or upset about this. Like I have choice. Yeah, I have choice. So this is this this really it reflects what I think some of the meditation practices is about is to see these things and realize like, hey, these things that are telling me to that I got to do these things, whether it be I got to move and do this or scratch this or. It all puts some separation between me and that thing so that I can, so to, to know, I have choice. Respond to this how you want to. Exactly. And what I also love about art, which helps my practice as well, is like I typically have a very linear mindset of like A equals B equals C equals D. Here's the to-do list, blah, 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 like type A type stuff. Art, as well as meditation practice, helps me to just let all that stuff go. And I mean, you could honestly call that white supremacy culture. Mm. Like let's release that, let's release the ways that we've been trained to be, and let's give us this hour, this space that we've allotted, whatever it is, just to let our minds be what they are and just let go, right? Let go, it doesn't have to be linear, it doesn't have to be this, then this. Let's just, whatever comes, there's no mistakes. Let's be free. Let's be free. I want to talk about one of the projects that you're working on. You've got a lot of things going on from the being on the board of Turn Up Green, which everybody in Nashville, if you're an artist, you got to go to Turn Up Green. <laughs> yeah. the, the treasure in Nashville that artists needs to know about. But I really want to talk about your your work with starting the Nashville People of Color Sangha. Yeah. Why was that important? What's the sort of affect that you hope to have in Nashville with creating space like that? So the Nashville POC Sangha is a meditation group just for people of color. So once in a while, I'll teach other things that are in mixed spaces, but the gatherings that we have, our regular monthly gatherings and our in-person retreats are specifically just for people of color. And the reason we do that, and we're not the first ones who have done it. There are other POC groups and BIPOC groups that exist. The reason we do that is because when we're meeting our minds in mindfulness practice and meditation practice, there's a vulnerability that comes with it. And as the Buddha taught, it's about suffering and the relief from suffering. And a lot of suffering for people of color comes from racial suffering. And so if I'm in a space where I'm being asked to meet my mind and be vulnerable and open up, and then we usually have group discussion, I'm going to feel different about that if there are people of the dominant culture in the space. I just am. Mm. 
and vice versa, that people of the dominant culture might also feel like maybe a little finicky about talking about a racial encounter that they had or responding to someone that's a person of color talking about a racial encounter, right? There's like this, this like self-consciousness that exists in these mixed spaces when we're asking people to be vulnerable. So for now, until I think people of color have maybe healed more and have had more of these spaces where we can just truly be authentic to ourselves, and until people of the dominant culture also have met their own minds when it comes to race and marginalization and their role in society and looking at their own race, I'm not sure that we're going to be ready yet for us to be as vulnerable and open as a space like this could provide the opportunity for. And so for now, we have this dedicated space and we try to make it as inclusive as possible with folks who have different abilities and have different needs and who have had traumatic experiences in their lives. We offer the Dharma in this space. It's not like specific type of Dharma just for people of color, but we're there to be a community for each other and to give each other the opportunity to practice together in community. Sangha means spiritual community. The painting that you chose to discuss today that is rooted in Black culture, specifically advocating for Black human rights, I would love for you to just start by describing what you see. Sure. So I see three Black people on the ground, kneeling with a sense of humbleness. And there's a heaviness to it as well. And I see this child in the middle, and for some reason it's like bringing tears to my eyes that she's there. And I see this beautiful man with the detail of John Lewis with this intense look on his face. And I have a lot of gratitude for that. And I'm noticing with my mindfulness practice, that's a thought. That's not the original sensation that I have. That gratitude is coming later because I know about the facts. And what I also feel is this sense of being close to the earth. Their bodies are close to the earth. There's flowers, there's the green, the green stem. And so they're surrounded by earth, being supported by the earth. And then this color that you chose for the background, I also really love because it's got a little bit of a levity to it. And it's got a little bit of femininity to it in my mind. And it's warm. So yeah, there's, a, there's like a prayer aspect to it and a grounding aspect to it and a humility aspect to it and a sadness aspect to it. What does it bring up for you? The facts of this is, hey, these guys were protesting like a segregated pool, like the very first laws that were subjugated against black people after the emancipation of the enslaved were vagrancy laws. You weren't allowed to be on public lands. So like from the very beginning, we weren't allowed to do public stuff. There was this separate sort of space that the Jim Crow era, that first law being maybe one that isn't discussed as much 
but probably the most egregious because it says this land isn't yours. Mm. And so therefore, where is my land? Where is home? If I can't, if I can't go to the public spaces and go to the parks and go to the pools, if I can't do this, like, where do I go? Yeah. Well, on that note, I think we should take a sip of tea. <laughs> that sounds great. So the other thing that comes up for me with this is when the Buddha became enlightened, there would be people who would be like, what do you mean you're enlightened? Who's your witness? Prove it. Oh. And the way that he proved it is he touched the ground and the ground shook. And that's it. Really? He shook the ground? <laughs> well, that's what the, that's how the story that's goes. What this, that's what the story says? But the main thing is that he didn't use any words. He didn't name a person. He touched the earth. He touched the ground. And that's what I see them doing here. Wow. I never knew that story. Yeah. And you could relate that back to practice too, right? This practice is not, when you meditate, you're not me meditating to become a good meditator. You're meditating for your own freedom. There's no one out there that's going to tell you, you did it. Good job, you're a good meditator. You could, I guess, track your time, but that doesn't really tell you anything. We just had some tragedy here in Nashville with yeah. the, the school shooting, unfortunately. And so you led a compassion practice. Could you tell us more about who was there and what was that about? Yeah, so the compassion practice was open to anyone in Nashville. It wasn't through the Nashville POC Sangha. It was through another group that I um, teach for called One Dharma Nashville. And we wanted to open up this practice to give people a chance to offer compassion to themselves, first and foremost, to honor whatever it is they may be feeling. And I specifically named numbness, because I think a lot of people are either feeling anger or numbness. And I think both of those are completely like reasonable and normal responses to the shootings that just happened for various reasons. And so we just wanted to give people a place to honor whatever was coming up and then care for themselves. So I talk about it as like, we can be our own first responders when something comes up by offering ourselves care. And so the practice of compassion is caring for ourselves and others, trembling with the pain of others. That's the translation of compassion, karuna. It actually translates into- Trembling with the pain of others. Yeah, it's trembling with. The second half of the practice is an intention to alleviate the suffering. So you're trembling with, but you're not jumping into the quicksand with them. There's a lifting, which is the intention to alleviate the suffering. And then that can plant the seed for action. So it's not just thoughts and prayers. It's this plants the seed for taking action. The question is, can we take wise action? Can we take action that we think will actually help the situation and not just be eventing or whatever it might be? Mm -hmm. Wow, so compassion is really, there's a little bit more oomph behind there compassion, is. the etymology of this word than that we probably assume. Yeah, at least in the way that the Buddha taught it. And honestly, like I've been doing compassion practice for years and it has led to, along with the rest of my practice, 
me changing the trajectory of my life. I mean, as big as like what I do for a living, where I live, like moving to Nashville from LA, doing this practice, this mindfulness practice, as well as the compassion practice has really created these mental grooves so that I'm used to approaching life and action from a compassionate, loving point of view. You're going to do a practice with us today, Yeah. right? Yeah. So what I was thinking about doing is doing a mindfulness awareness practice. It's sometimes called that. It's sometimes called a concentration practice because what you're doing is you're picking one object of meditation. And when your mind strays from it, you just keep coming back and you keep coming back and coming back. And I think what that really helps with is, let's say in your daily life, let's say you and I are having conversation and... You're talking and then my mind starts to wander, right? If I can notice that my mind has wandered, I can gently bring it back and be back here with you. And so it can enhance relationship. It can enhance my ability to feel in my body, right? That alignment of mind and body. And it can enhance my ability to actually like do what I'm doing well, be embodied, be in my body and do it well. Let's do it. Okay. Let's get into it. So I'm going to offer this practice, assuming that folks don't know anything about meditation. So we'll talk a little bit about posture. Okay. Okay. So if you like to just find a posture, it can be seated in a chair, or if you've already got yourself on a cushion on the floor, find yourself in a posture that supports being alert, yet relaxed. So if you're sitting on a chair or couch, that might mean sitting up a little bit so you're not totally sinking into the back of the chair or the couch. And if you're sitting on the floor on a cushion, you could sit against a wall or something, or if you already have a meditation set up, then sit on your cushion. And alert yet relaxed, to me, you can feel that in your body, in your back, with a nice straight spine, but not rigid just straight enough so that it can provide strength to the rest of your body. And with this strong back, you can allow your front to open, your heart center to open, to soften. And allowing the sense of strong back, soft front, to travel up and down through the rest of your body. So allowing your seat, your bottom, to root down into the earth. Allowing the top of your head to reach up to the sky, to the heavens. Allowing the strong back, soft front, to be a bridge between heaven and earth. Royalty, dignified. And as you feel your body in this posture, feel the space around you, feel a room that you're in, knowing that you're in this moment. We're not escaping this moment. We're sitting here as part of this world, not separate from it. And as you feel the space around your body, starting to bring your attention to the breath in your body. So 
the feeling of the body breathing. So quite literally, that could be feeling where the air enters your nose, feeling it travel down your throat, feeling it in your belly, without judgment, maybe with a little bit of gentleness and kindness, noticing where it feels easy to feel the breath in the body, where it's flowing. And also noticing now where it might not feel flowing, where it might feel more tense, stopped up. We're not trying to change our experience here. We're not trying to create any special type of experience. We're just building a relationship, a knowing without judgment of what's happening in the body with the breath. And so if you're feeling a place of stuckness with the breath or with the mind, you can just allow it to be. And you come back and you stay with the breath. It really is as simple as this breath in, this breath out. We can give ourselves the permission to be just with the simplicity. Breathing in, breathing out. Knowing when we're breathing in, knowing when we're breathing out. Being with it, being with the body. And if the mind wanders, which it will, the mind was made to think just as our ears were made to hear, it's not a problem. It's actually a part of this practice. When the mind wanders, we just notice that it's gone. We don't really care too much about where it's gone to. So like if it's a really juicy, wonderful fantasy, we don't try to stay with it. Or if it's a awful, angry, irritating thought, we don't try to get rid of it. We just notice that thought is there floating by. And then we gently come back to this breath. No judgment involved, no scolding. We're not doing it wrong. This is actually the practice the moment where you've woken up enough to notice that your mind is not on the breath, that's the waking up, that's the practice. And then you can gently invite the mind to come back, coming back home to the breath in the body. Coming home. Maybe it even feels nice to come home.
And if the mind wanders again, you just notice it like a cloud in the sky, letting the thought drift by, coming back gently without judgment. Oh, that just happened to be a thought. Okay. I'm practicing right now. Coming back. Again, not trying to change anything, not trying to change our experience. And just building a relationship with that back and forth. Mind going, mind coming back. Building a relationship with this breath, with this body. if something more intense arises like an emotion or a whole storyline of thought even if it takes you away for a long time it's all okay emotions are just thoughts with rockets strapped to their backs we can just notice and without judgment and maybe with a little care with gentleness inviting ourselves to come back to this breath to this moment, which is where the breath lives, this present moment. In these last few moments of our practice, noticing the tone with which you're speaking to yourself as you practice, as you guide yourself back from thoughts. Is it harsh and scolding? Is it neutral? Is it gentle? How are you talking to yourself?
Thank you for your practice. Jennifer, it's been really lovely having you today. If you're interested in learning more about mindfulness and meditation, there are a lot of resources out there. There are apps, there are books. It's very simple, though. You have this practice now that we've just done. You could sit your butt on a chair or a cushion and follow your breath. And you could do it. If you do it on a regular basis, it will be very powerful. It's like brushing your teeth. Brush your teeth every day. You have clean teeth. If you wait until the weekend to brush your teeth for two hours, it may not work that great. So developing a regular practice is it's really transformative, even if it's just for a few minutes a day. I really enjoyed this session with Jennifer Wong. If you enjoyed that practice at the end, and you're in Nashville or anywhere around the world, really. Jennifer leads a group called the Nashville People of Color Sangha. Um, we've included a link to that in the Museum of Presence newspaper, or you can go to the website to find it there as well. And actually, I go to that Sangha myself. So it's a really lovely community to sort of get involved in. I'd be remiss not to mention that I actually have been building a community of people interested in meditation and mindfulness and wellness. I actually lead meditation in this community. It's called True Voice. It's an app that you can download from the Apple Store. As of recording this session, that's really invitation only, but there is an invitation with this newspaper and this podcast so if you're interested in that i also will include on our website how to join that community as well and i hope that you find a practice that sits with you and transform you as well thank you to nashville thank you to all the people that contributed to making this podcast happen this is made possible by community funding from people like you, a small contribution from Metro Arts Nashville and the Studio Bank. So thank you to all of you all. You are now entering the Museum of Presence.